Risk managers, if they are willing, have the most amazing tools at their disposal to really change how organizations plan, forecast, budget, and make decisions. I'm Kelly Spikowski, and this is GRC and Me, a podcast where I interview industry thought leaders in governance, risk, and compliance on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, trends, and more to learn about their methods, solutions, and outlook in the space. Today, I have with me Alex Sidorenko, calling in from Catalonia, Spain. Alex is an expert in risk with over 14 years of risk management experience in private equity, sovereign funds, investment authorities, and venture capital firms across Australia, Russia, Oman, Poland, and Kazakhstan. In 2014, Alex was named the Risk Manager of the Year by the Russian Risk Management Association. Alex is currently Director of Risk Academy. Alex, welcome. Would you like to explain to us a little bit more about what the Risk Academy provides? Hi, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to speak to your audience. Thank you. Risk Academy is a fun story. It started many years ago when I was still head of risk of one of the biggest uh, venture capital funds in Russia. And I had this internal weird desire to share everything I do. So I created an online portal in Russian at the time, which shared all the templates, methodologies, video recordings from the conferences, masterclasses, basically everything I did outside of my, outside of my job. And that kind of continued as I was later, I later moved as the head of risk of one of the biggest sovereign funds in Russia. And sort of the Risk Academy continued, and it's now the biggest risk management brand in the Russian-speaking world. Um, but about three years ago, I moved most of my you know, IP in English, and now Risk Academy is the place where I write a lot of articles, where I do a lot of videos, um, and I provide a lot of uh, training sessions for either risk managers or the decision makers that want to apply risk tools to better make investment or strategic or operational budget decisions. So Risk Academy essentially is the place to learn about risk management, but also you know, a consulting house that does a lot of work when clients request for it. Wonderful. And I understand you have podcast episodes as well. I, I do. I do. I have, um, yeah. I think as of, as of today, I have like 300 plus articles, 400 plus videos, three books, and something like close to 100 different podcast episodes. Wonderful. What a great resource. Okay. How did you get into risk? That's, I guess, a a pretty typical student story. As many people in their early 20s, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So my dad was doing a, a PhD in chemical engineering at one of the best universities in Australia at the time. And he said, my university has just started this new and exciting degree in risk management. Why don't you try it? And just like any young student, I said, Dad, I don't care, so I'll do it. (laughs) And I signed up for this degree. And it was kind of hilarious because later, once we finished, we were the first ever undergraduate intake for the risk management degree. So we were the first ever bachelors of risk management in the country, in Australia. And it was it was kind of you know, funny because the university cancelled that degree a few years later. So we were the guinea pigs in a failed experiment. And I think the experiment oh. failed because 
risk management is not really a profession. It's a competency that should be part of most degrees, if not all the degrees at university. Um, so it was, you know, it was an exciting start of the career, realizing that you <laughs> are a few and the market doesn't really appreciate you being there. Yeah, that's fascinating. And this was in Australia, you said, at Monash? At Monash University, yeah. And it's by pure chance that I have a second degree in statistics because I was so good at statistics. The faculty for statistics and econometrics kept sending me letters do a second degree in statistics, do a second degree in statistics. So I kept ignoring them for a year. And then on the second year, I again got like really good marks for stats. And I decided to do a second degree in statistics. I mean, thank God, who knew risk management is, is actually about math as much as it is about everything else. Yeah, I was going to say those really go hand in hand. So that I'm sure that serves you quite well. Absolutely. So one of the things that I really like about the content that you put out there, especially your blog, is that you claim to be the most controversial risk blog. What makes it controversial and why is that your goal? That's a really good question. And I mean, I can't really say I've thought about it a lot. I think somebody said that it was controversial and somebody on LinkedIn kept calling me controversial Alex or something. So I just kind of, you know, I said, <laughs> fine, I'll, I'll go with it. It wasn't necessarily the intention. But I guess the general observation, I mean, now in the age of social media, I can, you know, we, all of us, we can track engagement, we can track a lot of statistics on how certain messages get better or worse perceived by the audience. And I've been saying pretty much exactly the same thing for the last maybe 10 or 12 years. And the first seven years out of that last 10 have been pretty uneventful. As in, I've been saying exactly the same message, but it just really wasn't widespread. It wasn't received as well. And I think when I kind of got sick of it and I started challenging and uh, questioning some of the norms, or some of the accepted practices in risk management and exposing some of the you know, silly things that we do as risk professionals still do, then I, I immediately, like it was, it wasn't, it was really a no brainer. The engagement skyrocketed compared to you know, your average mild, uh, you know, friends to everyone being nice position. In the age we live now, I don't know why that's happening, but it just makes perfect economic sense to do it, to be more controversial mm -hmm. than not. I receive dozens of messages every day saying, you know, whether they like or don't like something. You know, most people are still pretty shy, so they send like personal messages instead of just commenting uh, under the article. And for every one message that I get from people who hate the format or the form in which I communicate and they find it uh, you know, insulting or they find it too controversial or too difficult to absorb. For every one person who dislikes the approach I take, I, I get like you know, 10 or, or more people saying, thank you, you know, finally you know, we heard the message and you know, it will help us get the message across. So even in that regard, even though a small and it's it's by far the minority, small percentage of people very much dislike the way I present information. Majority of the people find it helpful. So again, even in this regard, it, it works. And everybody who claims uh, it would have been so much better if I chose a much milder form of communicating, that's actually not true. I mean, I've tried 
different formats. And you know, statistically speaking, this is by far the most engaging one. Mm-hmm. I guess in 2019, it pays to be controversial. That, that's all I can say. I agree with you. I like it. I think that risk and compliance right now is really ripe for some disruption mm. and challenging status quo. So I think it's great. And I just was curious. So thank you. Something that else that I really like about your approach and I agree with and I want to really highlight on GRC and me is that you encourage using risk for strategy. So what methodology do you recommend? How is it applied to strategy? And then why is that important? Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. I was just writing another article on that topic just before we got our call. If we ask how old is risk management, then, you know, people usually will divide into two kinds of camps. One will say risk management is ancient because that's what people did when they were building pyramids. And then the other kind of camp of people would say risk management is uh, relatively new in the 70s and 80s. That's when the kind of the whole concept of GRC and ERM uh, became more more prominent. Um, Well, in reality, I mean, both of those groups are are wrong because the modern day practice or theory of risk management and the science behind risk management really started in kind of in in 16th and 17th century when uh, some of the mathematicians starting to quantify uncertainty and using mathematics to help them make decisions about future, be that strategic decisions, be that investment decisions, be that operational decisions, it doesn't really matter that much. The whole idea of using mathematics to make sense of uncertainty, which is highly complex, unpredictable by definition, is about 16th, 17th century. And we've kind of, we've lived with that science of risk management. I mean, it it was first called probability theory, Then in the early 20th century, it it kind of developed and evolved into decision science. And by the 1970s, some of the psychologists kind of jumped on board and we had neuroeconomics developed on top of it. So, you know, probability theory with decision science, with neuroeconomics or risk psychology, all of that kind of merged. And by 1970s, we had what was a pretty solid foundation for risk management. But then in the 80s, a miracle happened, because I guess that's what usually happens when something is very interesting but highly complex. Somebody hijacked it and really decided to dumb it down to make it, I guess, appealing and relevant for the majority of the people. It's like astronomy existed for so long, but that was too complex and it was highly mathematical to comprehend. So somebody came up with this for, with astrology. You know, astrology is basically your you know, fairy tale science. I mean, fairy tale. It's not. It's not real science. <laughs> it's basically BS. Right. Um, and, and that's what most of the modern day risk management theories are. They're basically astrology of proper decision science. And and so uh, what I've been supposedly controversial about in my in my articles and in my work, I'm trying to bring the risk community back to almost like 1970s saying, well, we've had all the good tools and we've had all the science behind proper risk-based decision-making for ages and we don't really have to recreate the wheel and and the existence of new artificial intelligence or cyber risk doesn't really change much. I mean, the math is still the same. All I've been trying to do is say, well, if you want to make a strategic decision or an investment decision or a budget decision for that, for that sense, well, we actually 
have all the methodologies we need to do that. And if we want to make a choice between different strategic alternatives, well, decision trees are still as powerful as they ever were. In fact, decision trees still drive a large portion of artificial intelligence uh, algorithms out there together with neural networks. Both tools are old. <laughs> you know. mm -hmm. And so for strategy, integrating risk management into strategy just It makes perfect sense, but it's not its not unique or new in any way. I mean, this is what risk management was always about in 15th century, in 16th century, in 17th century, 18th century, 19th and 20th. I think it's unreasonable for us in the 21st century to consider it somehow an innovation. But to integrate into strategic planning, we still use decision trees, which are old. We still use scenarios and simulations. Mm -hmm. And simulations, you know, the Monte Carlo... Uh, engine for uh, algorithm for simulating the possible future outcomes has been developed in 45-46. So that's what, 75 almost years old and still as powerful as it was when it was developed to you know, create the atom bomb or nuclear uh, weapons. Mm -hmm. So I obviously think risk management is important, not just in strategy, but in any kind of decision making because it just makes so much sense to do risk analysis not once a quarter, as we're used to doing it once a year, once every six months, but actually do the risk analysis before an important decision is being made by the management or the investment committee or you know, whoever, or us personally in life. And uh, the good news is we have all the tools necessary to conduct risk analysis before making decisions. That's the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it methodology. Well, kind of, <laughs> which is weird because, I mean, I'd love to see risk management associations and uh, you know, risk consulting powerhouses come up with better ways to apply those existing tools. But that's not unfortunately what they do, which kind of forces me to be controversial. That's not what they do. They recreate the wheel instead. And ironically, they don't give us better tools. They actually give us tools that are significantly worse. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, we know for a fact that the methodologies that are commonplace in risk management right now, for example, you know, using heat maps or trying to multiply likelihood by consequence and getting like a risk level, we know for a fact that those methodologies provide much poorer results. They're much less accurate mm -hmm. than any of the like 70-year-old tools, which is bizarre. Yeah. Do you think it's uh, the human element that is breaking down the mathematics of it? It's difficult to say. It's more. It's. I think it's more the kind of the entrepreneurship spirit, um, because whoever's um, whoever's made this popular and uh, Douglas Hubbard is in his book, like he's publishing another book on risk management very time soon, which I'm really looking forward to. But in his book, he's actually went on a quest to find the patient zero. You know, find that person who hijacked risk management and turned it into <laughs> astrology. <laughs> I, I, I want to read that too. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Isn't it exciting? Like, it, it's amazing. Somebody seriously hijacked risk management in 1980s and turned it into literally astrology. Your average risk management report is no different from a horoscope. It's mm, just as yeah. cool. It's just as accurate and it's just as uh, dangerous to use for any kind of proper decision making. Um, so on one sense, it's horrible that this happened. But then on the other sense, you can kind of understand how entrepreneurship 
and making money is that carrot that's dangling, mm. you know, in front of the people. Because, uh, you know, decision science and math and uh, cognitive biases and risk perception, it's hard. It's like it's difficult. That's why, you know, that's why they have whole departments in Pentagon. And that's why CIA spends you know, millions on researching this. It's actually really difficult. Um, and um, somebody had a brilliant idea. Why don't I dumb it down for everyone? Um, well, I'm going to lose all of the important information and it will become a horoscope, but I'll be able to sell millions of copies. And that's literally, I mean, you know, astrology, if you think about it, mm-hmm. it's hugely popular. And I mean, people are making ridiculous amount of money on, on horoscopes and everything else. So from a commercial point of view, makes total sense. From an ethical point of view, very questionable practice. Sure. Now I'm curious, what's your astrological sign? <laughs> Aries. Aries. Uh, well, actually, oh. I, think, I think, because when I when I was born, I was Aries. But remember how they moved the whole thing? Oh, yeah. Years back? That was not accurate. <laughs> that was disproven. Yeah. But it, uh, to your point, but, but, it's all hokey fakery anyway. <laughs> but now exactly, now exactly. the controversial title makes sense because Aries is the bull. So. <laughs> yeah. Yep, I guess. Okay, so something that I keep hearing a lot lately and it's not a new methodology but it's just really coming full circle now I think is risk quantification. It's been really hot. Yeah. So why do you think that is and when should it be considered? And then how do you recommend organizations approach risk quantification? Yeah, which is fascinating because risk quantification can literally mean like a million different things from very simplistic scoring methodology, you know, saying, uh, look outside, if the sky is blue, then it's going to be a good day uh, to like a complex, you know, Monte Carlo simulation model that uh, runs like 10,000 scenarios trying to figure out what the possible range of outcomes is. So it's a highly broad complex. Uh, the good news is that almost everything we do is some form of quantification. And over the last 50 years, a number of scientists have done a lot of research trying to figure out, trying to answer the age-old question, who is better, a human or an algorithm? And uh, unless something new comes up in the near future, um, at the last conference, the probability management conference in the US, I think it was again Douglas Hubbard who was doing the sharing the stats. Uh, but there was approximately 150 studies in different fields of life conducted to determine who's better, human intuition or some sort of algorithm, some sort of you know, quantification, even the most basic quantification. And out of that 150, I mean, I may be wrong, it could be 130, but you know, kind of, it doesn't matter. Like You get the, the volume of research. It's been extensive. And out of the 150, two studies have showed that human intuition is similar or slightly better than an algorithm. Wow. And everything else, so 138, showed that actually using some sort of algorithm is much better than relying on our intuition. So if we kind of if we look at the situation from that perspective, and, and you know, all your listeners, you're more than welcome to disprove that. You know, run your own study, <laughs> prove us otherwise. But until then, we have to rely on, and, and it's a large population of scientists that, that try to answer that question. 
And the study covers all different fields, agriculture, pharmacy, engineering, oil and gas, government. It's like it's a, it's a very broad spectrum of study. So from that perspective, it's again, it's a no-brainer. You have to quantify everything if it's a big enough decision, like if it's significant enough, if it's not trivial, if it's going to cost reputation or money, then quantification is definitely the way to go. Because the alternative to quantification is to not use anything and rely on your intuition, which is a pretty dangerous bet, it seems, based on the research I conducted as of, you know, as of now. So quantifying is kind of the only way, it seems. The, the real question is, how complex can we go? How com complex do we need to go? And here, again, there are different schools of thought. You know, for example, you know, the school of thought by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and Vernon Smith, all the, all these uh, researchers in cognitive biases and human you know, risk perception and risk psychology, say that because we are inherently irrational in our decision-making, because we fall into so many different cognitive biases, because the quality of our decision-making depends on how much glucose or sugar we have in our blood, whether we are tired or not, whether we're happy or not, what colors you know, we're wearing, because we're so highly influenced by all those many different random factors, we really have to apply proper, you know, quantify the quantitative tools to help us make decisions. And then, of course, there's the school of thought by Nassim Taleb, who says that no model can really be predictive of the future because the future is highly complex and the fat tales are hidden from our comprehension that we have to use the models, but we also have to have downside protection no matter what. But basically, the, those schools of thought still say we have to apply some sort of tools. And the good news is sometimes even a little quantification improves the quality of decision-making significantly. So you don't actually, like, we don't actually have to run like a highly complex Monte Carlo simulation to make a better decision. Sometimes even adding a little bit of analysis to our decision-making, I mean, sometimes even extrapolating the future, sometimes creating a scoring model based on a number of uh, uh, but factual observable items can significantly improve the decision-making. And Douglas Hubbard has an amazing book called How to Quantify or How to Measure Anything. He argues that sometimes three observations is enough to improve decision-making, not to make the decision-making perfect, which is not our objective, but to improve our decision-making compared to just intuitive thinking. So uh, risk quantification has actually been hot since 15th century, but now kind of everybody is finally you know, getting the hang of it because I think part of it is that most organizations have been disillusioned with that um, you know, astrology version of risk management with ERM-style discussions, realizing that you know, having a heat map of your strategic risks doesn't actually change how you, you know, budget or make multi-billion dollar investment. Mm -hmm. We have, we've had, we've had all the tools to help us make better decisions. So how do I recommend organizations approach risk quantification and when should it be considered? I think it's the first point to realize is that quantitative risk analysis tools is actually like a whole spectrum of tools, starting from very simple decision trees, which you can draw on the, on the napkin, to Scoring methodologies, which again are relatively simple, 
to scenario analysis, which is super basic, to more complex uh, simulation models, which are you know slightly more complicated. But if the price is high enough, if the reputational damage is significant enough, then you know, running a simulation, even though it's complicated, it's not it's not like it's not a deal breaker. It's not that difficult. It takes like maybe an extra day to run the simulation and maybe like an extra week to find all the necessary assumptions and verify assumptions and you know, actually create the, the model. Adding a week to like a multi-million dollar decision or a multi-billion dollar decision is literally the, the least of the troubles that we have. Right, exactly. Thank you. I think that's really insightful. Even just considering three objective opinions is better than one or two I think that's really helpful information for the audience. It kind of reminds me, too, of um, did you ever see that movie Moneyball? It was about Billy Bean and how he uses sabermetric analysis on players, yeah, b- exactly. baseball player scouting. Yeah. Yeah. He, so it's a little it's a little bit like that. Well, absolutely. I mean, he, he was the first mm-hmm. in the industry, in the sport industry, who used very simple math to significantly improve decision making. Yeah. It's fascinating. Which is essentially what risk management is all about. I mean, whatever industry we are working on, we can use some of the basic risk management tools that we have and significantly improve the quality of decision-making that executives have. I mean, here's another, I mean, this is just mind-blowing stuff. And it's mind-blowing because this uh, theorem has been uh, proved by the Danish mathematician in 1906 it's called Jensen's inequality. Mm-hmm. This is groundbreaking because most executives still have no idea. And this is how business operates, ignoring that finding. Can you just imagine this is 1906? So 110 years ago, a mathematician proved that when you build your business plans or budgets or investment proposals or literally anything else, or you know, um, production forecasts or anything, or sales forecasts, when you build anything in business based on single point estimates, especially if those single point estimates are what people call most likely or averages, mm-hmm. you're pretty much guaranteed to have an unrealistic result. So you basically, you know, and you know, this is how everyone does it in business right now. Mm-hmm. He took this idea and made it very popular in his book, Flow of Averages, which is amazing. But he's basically saying, if your company is planning and budgeting and forecasting using averages, which is what every single company on the planet does, mm-hmm. as soon as you signed off on that budget or that business plan or that strategy, you're pretty much guaranteed to have an unrealistic target because you've just taken out all of the uncertainty out of the equation and you've created this unrealistic fairy tale. And so, of course, whenever we're working with our clients, you know, we, we are the, you know, we train, we tra- we're the training producers for some of the biggest corporations in Russian-speaking countries. Whenever we talk to them, is we're saying, well, we've had, since the dawn of time, since the 16th century, we had the solution. What's the alternative to planning and budgeting and forecasting with single-point estimates? Well, of course, we can do that with ranges. We have the techniques to create business plans with ranges that will give you a distribution instead of a single point forecast. Basically, what they're saying 
is that the way business planning is happening right now in 99.9% of companies in the world pretty much guarantees irrational results because it ignores risk. And we actually have the solutions. We've had it for at least 70 years to overcome that, to improve our planning, which is fascinating. I think risk managers, if they are willing, have the most amazing tools at their disposal to really change how organizations plan, forecast, budget, and make decisions. Yeah, fascinating. And I totally agree. So this is actually a really good segue because I'm curious about you have such worldly experience in risk management. And I have to think that, you know, just based off of our conversation, even so far, you mentioned how our humanity kind of plays a role in our gut decision making. And we've got dopamine firing, influencing our decisions. So what differences do you see in risk management globally? Culturally, are we really different across the different countries in, in terms of how we approach risk management? That's a very good question. The, uh, I'm sure, and I think the kind of the short answer is, uh, I'm sure we are different, but because most of the people on the planet are so fundamentally wrong in their approach to risk and uncertainty in general, that our cultural differences are insignificant compared to our methodological differences, if I can kind of put it that way. Yep. Um, we're so inherently ignorant of uncertainty and risk when we make decisions in the workplace um, that you know some com- some countries are slightly worse, some countries are slightly better at it, but we are kind of off by a mile, and plus minus hundred meters is is not the is is not the real problem per se. Mm-hmm. My next question since we've been talking about predictive analysis, (laughs) what are you predicting for the next couple of years in the risk management space? I sincerely hope that the messages that myself and many other risk managers have been pushing for years will become more mainstream. I hope that we will switch from having conversation about risks and the risk levels to uh, having conversations about uncertainty affecting objectives or decisions or forecasts or budgets. And we will actually finally find that magic pill, uh, which by the way, I have a sense that I think I might have found it recently, uh, finding that magic pill to sell the idea of thinking in ranges and scenarios and simulating the future to the executives. I just think it's it's so ironic. Uh, before making any kind of decision, any kind of big decision, the CEO would call his tax advisor, he would call his legal team, he would call his finance team to first figure out what the problems are, potential problems are, and then run some sort of scenarios to figure out what's the best approach. I mean, most executives do that as a given. Like no one would make a decision without first consulting at least somebody in finance, um, you know, tax or legal team. And, and yet uh, almost no one calls their risk manager for the same advice because we, you know, because I, I think we've, we've not done well in selling our tools, our, our expertise mm-hmm. as being able to add and make sense of uncertainty in the future decision-making. Fingers crossed, I've only been 
saying exactly the same thing for the last seven years. Um, <laughs> fingers crossed, business plans of the future will not have a single target. Mm -hmm. It will not just say we want revenues of 100 million. It will say we want revenues from 80 to 105 million. And uh, this is the kind of the probability of achieving our objectives. We will actually start talking about relative things when we talk about the future. And we will appreciate that uncertainty has a huge impact on the future. And we will be honest with our shareholders and uh, government regulators about the effect that uncertainty has on objectives. I mean, I was amazed when I was still the head of risk of one of the biggest sovereign funds in, in the country. I was amazed my CEO had the courage to take to the Ministry of Finance the calculations that we've done. And he's shown that we build a strategy until like 2020. This was you know, quite a few years back. And that strategy basically said that there was a 30% chance that the strategy will not work. And in fact, if it doesn't work, we may lose quite a lot of money. And this is how much money we will lose with 90% confidence interval. Uh, I, I thought it was just amazing. I mean, it was, I've never mm -hmm. seen anything like that. When um, the companies were honest with the government and the regulators and the public about the level of risk they're taking, and how that risk, if it happens, may affect uh, the bottom line. Mm -hmm. I sincerely hope this is the future that we're moving towards. I hope so, too. And I think we're right there. I think we're at that tipping point. Just because I feel like a lot of organizations are taking another look at risk and really wanting to change up and improve their programs. They're starting to invest in the tools and technology that they need to set their programs up for success, which I think is a really good starting point. You have to have a foundation of gathering that data to be able to do anything smart with it. So I think we're on that precipice. So I'm hopeful with you as well. Absolutely. Well, this was really eye-opening and sort of a brief little history on risk. So thank you for that. I'm going to say you are refreshing and very reasonable, not controversial at all. <laughs> well, that, that's what I've been saying all this time. I mean, I, I personally don't think that controversial. All, all I'm saying is wake up. Yeah. The things that we've been trying to do for the last uh, 30 years don't work as well as we want. Maybe the problem is not that executives are not listening. Maybe executives are actually very clever mm -hmm. that they're not listening to some of the nonsense that we're trying to sell them. And uh, why don't we just, uh, go back to the drawing board and, and use some of the tools that you know, engineers, scientists, doctors have been using to make decisions under uncertainty for the last uh, century. I agree. Get back to the basics. All right. Well, Alex, that rounds out our conversation. I really appreciate you coming on GRC and me. I think this is great information for our audience. So thank you for that. And I wish you the best of luck with the Academy. I'm going to be tuning into your content as well. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Karen.